1: Welcome to episode 115 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today I am so excited to introduce you to Sarah. Sarah is Jacob's sister. Jacob died when Sarah was just in the midst of really doing her work to become a social worker. She originally had no intention of doing grief work as her professional career, but after Jacob's death, everything changed in her life. And she really dedicated her entire professional career to working with bereaved people. So on today's episode, we talk so much about that, about individual therapy, what that looks like, what it should look like, what you should look for in a therapist, what group therapy is like, how group therapy is different than individual therapy, and the benefits of each of them. So I just know this is going to be so valuable for those of you who maybe knew in your your grief and are thinking about either starting to go to group therapy or individual therapy, maybe even some of you who are further along in the grief journey that might think, oh, maybe some of those things might still be valuable for me in my journey as well. So I just know that you will enjoy listening to Sarah and Jacob's story and that you will learn so much. I just want to make one more announcement that you should be looking forward to that week before Christmas and the week between Christmas and New Year's, we are again going to be doing some live streams. So the first one right before Christmas will be again, Gwen and I doing a bit of a follow up on the uh, podcast episode that we did last week as a live stream about preparing for the holidays. And this is a little more kind of last minute preparation and just fielding questions from people about what they are expecting or what they could be doing uh, for that holidays, for Christmas and the new year. And then of course the next week we're going to have that great session. I'm so looking forward to it. Just a post-Christmas discussion with Stephanie and Chrissy and Demetra. I really look forward to having the, the four of us together to be able to just talk about what Christmas was like and what our journeys are like and different points in time. And so I know that's going to be just so kind of fun to listen to. And if you have any questions for any of the four of us, you feel free to log in then and give us some questions. For today, though, I want you to sit back and enjoy listening to Sarah, Jacob's sister. (music) Thank you so much, Sarah, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. I really am looking forward to talking to you. Thank
2: you so much, Marcy. It's, it's an honor to be here today.
1: So just to give my listeners a little bit of background. So Sarah wrote to me a couple of months ago now, and she works as a grief therapist now. But this all started because of her brother. So I want you to just start by talking to us about Jacob, just so we can kind of get to know who Jacob was as a brother and a little bit about you and your life together with him.
2: Yeah, so Jacob was vivacious. (laughs) That Honestly, that is the only way you can describe him to still do him justice. He was the class clown since childhood and just like larger than life personality, larger than life hair. (laughs) He had this like (laughs) frizzy, frizzy, afro, like just so thick, luscious brown curls. He often dressed quite outrageously. He would be known to wear like multiple prints or like sparkly things or sequin things and sheer things over top of non-sheer things. Like he just, he didn't even be to the, his own drum.
1: That sounds perfect. It really does. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. He was great. And he had like such a big heart for others. Yeah. His, his peers always described him as like kind and conscientious and just like would, would do anything for anyone at any time.
1: Was he a big brother to you or a little brother?
2: He's my little brother. He's four and a half years younger than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for most of my life, we were cats and dogs. <laughs> we could not stand each other. <laughs> Was it just the two of you for kids? It's the just family? the two of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just the two of us. He's my only sibling. Um, And we would drive each other up the wall and bug each other and pick on each other. But then so help you God, if you picked on either one of us, the other one was there to kick your butt to the curb.
1: (laughs) Isn't that how it often works? Yeah.
2: Yeah. He's my brother. I'm the only one allowed to bully him. Thank you very much. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I could say all sorts of horrible things about my sister, but if you even dream about saying anything bad about her, yeah, you're you're going to pay for it. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> very good. very good. So as you got a little older, you got along a little better then?
2: Yes. Uh, so when I, I moved out of the house at 18, I took a gap year between high school and university. and from then on we were like totally inseparable. It was like a flip like a like a switch was flipped. We would like message each other all the time and talk to each other on the phone. and yeah, it was just like a totally different chapter in our relationship. We were were super, super close, even despite the age difference. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. So what happened then?
2: So I was in between my first and second year of my master's degree. He had just finished his second year of university. He wanted to be a pharmacist Uh and like find cures for all of the terrible diseases of the world.
1: Oh, so not like a pharmacist at the local drugstore or something, but like working at a pharmaceutical company.
2: Yeah. Like a pharmacologist. Uh-huh.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was, I had planned this fabulous trip to go to Europe, um, by myself. So I was backpacking through Europe and I got a call that I needed to come home, that he was in the hospital and that the doctors think I need to, to come back. So I immediately got on the next flight back to Toronto uh, where he was living and where he was in hospital. And by the time I got there, he was brain dead. Yeah. So I got back in time to like say goodbye to him. And I was, um, I was there with, with him when they removed him from the life support machines. And.
1: So what happened?
2: uh, He had a heart attack at the age of 20.
1: Wow.
2: Yeah he had other like health and mental health complications that I think kind of put too much stress on his cardiovascular system. And we do have a significant family history of cardiovascular disease.
1: Yeah. But what a shock.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 20 year old little brothers don't Don't die from heart attacks. A heart attack. No, no, they don't. Not when you're just in college between your second and third year college. Oh, my word. Hmm. So that, though, changed kind of your whole life, really, from that point, didn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in like so, so many different ways. Mm hmm. So talk about that because you you had mentioned that you were taking this trip before you started your masters, and so you were in a master's program for for social work. Social work. So you're going to be a social worker. And what had you thought kind of before this all happened with Jacob? And what transition? What changed then?
2: Yeah. So I really wanted to work in corrections. I wanted to work with people who um, were being cycled through the prison system. Mm -hmm. I had done some research and heard about like the recidivism rates and how like the prison industrial complex just keeps kind of bringing people back and bringing people back. And I was like, I want to end that. I want to end that cycle. So uh, that was really what I had intended to when I had applied for my master's of social work. And yeah, I abandoned that almost immediately. I got through my second year of my master's degree in like a total fog and like relying on my peers to help me out because I had no energy. I had no memory.
1: I had no short-term memory retention at all. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy how that grief really gets you though and you just can't. You just can't think right. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it was one of the reasons why I left practicing medicine for such a long time cuz I was doing it for a while but I really wasn't doing it well. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't remembering names of medications. I wasn't
2: mm-hmm.
1: I just felt like if I can't think of these things, what else am I missing, right? And yeah. so that was kind of scaring me a little bit that I felt like. And that's not everybody. Right. I mean, I feel like my husband probably took uh, amazing, I'm sure he took amazing care of the patients he was putting to sleep. So I don't think anyone was in danger. (laughs) But and I don't think I was particularly dangerous. I just just did I just felt like I might be missing something here. It's really just when your mind is in such a fog, right?
2: Yeah. Oh, I felt that fog so so heavy, Marcy. Like I said, like I had no short term memory retention. I had no capacity to like be able to carry even like a normal conversation. And yeah, I just, I got hit so hard by those, those side effects of grief that are lesser known. And they were certainly not known to me at that time. I had no idea what was happening to me. I thought I was like losing it. Right.
1: So did I. I really thought if I, if I tell people just how bad I'm feeling, they're going to put me in a psychiatric hospital. Right. I mean, that's yeah. what I really honestly thought. And I remember the day that I said these things that I was feeling to my therapist and I thought, what's she going to say? Is she going to say it's time. It's time to go in the psychiatric hospital on the south side of town here. I mean, I really thought that might be where she was going to go. And she can't instead came back with. "Yep, yeah, that's normal. And I thought, oh, my word, how can this be normal? How in the world can this be normal?
2: Yeah. And that was, so I very quickly was pointed out by friends that like, Sarah, you need to go into therapy. Like, what are you doing with your life? And I was like, yeah, all right. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> right. And I am so lucky. I found the most amazing grief therapist. And I honestly don't think that I would have been able to finish my master's degree if I hadn't met her. Yeah, exactly. As you said, she normalized all of those like super scary, super Unknown or lesser-known side effects of grief, and and just like helped me do the work that I had to do within myself and within my life to to integrate the loss of my brother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in my last couple of months of my master's degree, I did a a mini thesis, and I was I was going to do it on corrections. And then I started it, and I emailed my professor. I was like, listen, I know we're halfway through this, but like I need to change topics. I have to do it on young adult sibling loss. Like I just have to. And she's like, yeah, do it. I'll, like, I'll give you an extension. I'll do whatever like, needs to be done, but like, just do it. This project needs to be done. I agree with you. So through all this research, I realized that there is not a lot of research nope. <laughs> on young adult sibling loss. It is not an area that is well-known. And the very little research that exists out there points that it is one of the most traumatic things that can happen to a young adult. It is more traumatic than losing a spouse. And from that moment on, I was like, this is, this is what I need to do.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. yeah it it is I mean I've said it before that the siblings are often said to be the forgotten grievers Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. is just what it is I mean I I I'm sure I know the answer to this question if I said to you when people ask you did they ask you how are you doing or how's your mom doing which which question (laughs) was more prevalent to you
2: it was always, how are your parents doing? Yes,
1: how are your parents? And I was like, I don't know, but I'm not doing good. <laughs> I know. Like, okay, yeah, my parents are doing terrible, but so am I. I'm doing terrible yeah. too. And I do think that 100%, and obviously this this show very much is geared towards grieving parents. It really is. totally. But we talk a lot about the other kids too and how to care for them and how to not forget about their grief and how – to let other people remember their grief too and please please don't just ask my son how is your mom doing how are your parents doing please ask him how he is because this is a horrible thing I mean you know they lost my kids lost one of their best friends in the whole world right I mean they did everything together so yeah. anyway,
2: that's the thing about sibling loss is it's, you've lost a lifelong companion, right? Like you, you're supposed to have that person from infancy, from childhood, right up into your senior years.
1: Yeah.
2: They're, they're supposed to be there for you for every stage in the life process. They're there to rant and rave about your parenting, about your parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you share secrets with your sibling that you share with no other person. You have this understanding with your sibling that you have with no other person. It is such a unique and special bond. There's no replacing it. Mm
1: -hmm. And you're right. I mean, you do know them far longer than your spouse, hopefully, right? I mean, you've known them from the very, very beginning, from those first days, and you share so much together. It's just a devastating loss to lose them. Especially, I think, when you you talked about this young adult stage where oftentimes you don't have a spouse yet. You don't mm-hmm. have someone that's right there in your life to kind of help share you share um, and get through that when you don't have that partner for you to grieve with. Even though, you know, obviously if you did, you know, if when something happens to my sibling... I would have Eric, my husband, to turn to. He won't grieve it the same way as me, Mm -hmm. but I at least have him to turn to. But a young adult really doesn't have that either, oftentimes.
2: I felt that alienation so deeply. Like I didn't know that you could feel that lonely in this world. And, And I had a partner and I had best friends and I had, you know, other family members that I was super, super close with. And I like that loneliness just like broke my heart again and again
1: and again Mm -hmm. and I've spoken to so many people too that you don't want to end up burdening your parents with it too so there is so much of this thing that you want to protect them Mm because you know how badly they're hurting and so you don't want to put more pain on them it's a delicate balance though Mm -hmm. because certainly your parents want to help you (laughs) yeah Oh, oh I talked to somebody not too long ago, and they were talking about how like their three-year-old is trying to comfort them. I mean, it's just in you from little to try to help your parents and try to protect your parents, and that ends up coming out so much. Yeah. So anyway, you changed your whole outlook. Suddenly, you're writing a thesis on on grief, and that's the way then your career ended up taking you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Right out of university, I started with Gilda's Club in Bury, and it was such a good opportunity for me because I got to really put my toes in the whole grief therapy puddle, as it were.
1: (laughs) So for those people who aren't familiar with Gilda's Club, why don't you talk about that? It it is international. So yeah, yeah, why don't you talk about what Gilda's Club kind of is for people who don't know?
2: Totally. So Gilda's Club is part of the cancer support community, which is an international network of individual not-for-profits providing free professional level services to folks impacted by cancer. That includes those who have the diagnosis as well as their family and friends, and then those who have lost a loved one to cancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you started with them? Yeah, doing grief therapy is was and still is probably one of my favorite parts of the job and people give me weird looks and I'm like yeah I love talking about dead people and like grief (laughs) that's my jam I know (laughs) they're like are you they're like are you okay I'm like probably not no I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing
1: I know I know and then I'm the same way I think people think (laughs) I'm crazy on my days off from work I talk to brief parents I mean that's weird I know (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) Yeah. And then that wasn't still enough grief work for me. So I started working with a private practice offering more grief services to folks from just like broader, a broader variety of backgrounds. Mm
1: -hmm. And you said you now have three jobs, right? Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I also work for another charity based in Toronto. They service folks who are impacted by eating disorders and I run grief groups for them as well. There you go. So
1: you've got three grief jobs. Yep. (laughs) Not even close to what you thought you'd be doing. No, this is not what I had envisioned for my life before
2: Jacob died at all. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't trade it for the world.
1: Yeah. And how long ago now has it been since Jacob died? Four and a half years. Four and a half years. So I know for me, talking with other bereaved parents and doing the podcast and things like that, has helped my grief tremendously actually it I feel like I help other people but it's very helpful to me as well do you find that helpful in your own grief as well
2: that's such a good question Marcy I think for me I really had to decide that I was in a place in my grief where Mm -hmm. I could do the work for others while not being triggered that was like absolute non-negotiable for me right And I don't know that it helps my grief journey because I do try and keep them separate. I mean, like, obviously I bring the empathy Mm -hmm. to session because I know I have felt that pain, that deep, deep pain that non-grievers just can't even fathom. Like it is just so deep and so beyond your wildest imagining of of what hurt can be. Mm -hmm. And still, I feel that I am honoring Jacob with this work. Mm -hmm. Like it. I honestly feel like he's just smiling down on me and being like, yeah, like, good job. That's my big sister. You're making some kind of difference. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. So I don't know that it's it's helping my grief journey, but it, yeah, I guess it does in
1: a way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that you can do with Jacob, right? That you can feel like he's there with you, kind of doing it, doing it with you and, and being your cheerleader. But you are right, too, in that you can't be doing something that will trigger you. Yeah. I mean, for me, I still have things at work that I can't do. Yeah. You know, I mean, they they have now a couple times scheduled for me to see somebody who had just been in a car accident to evaluate them, a teenager's. I can't do that. I can't. That's too close. Right. And it triggers me too much. And I'm not going to be able to really focus on them when I see their living teenager in the room who was just in a car accident. That's too much for me. So there are some things that are too close and I think you have to separate that out. I mean, for a while, early on, I had trouble with every teenage boy. I had trouble seeing any sets of brothers in in my Mm. practice. You know, like there would be many, many triggers. But as I've gotten further along in my grief journey, I can do those things now. But you have mm-hmm. to kind of wait until you can do those things without being triggered.
0: Right? Yeah. And, and yeah, I couldn't absolutely. start the
1: podcast like right away. I mean, it was a year after Andy died when I started the podcast. Not that I don't still get triggered and I cry because I do, but but I don't – I'm not at the same place that I was in the beginning because then I wouldn't have been able to do any of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's been my journey as well is, is
2: finding that balance between like bringing that meaning Mm -hmm. and bringing that legacy of Jacob into my career while ensuring that a, I'm looking out for my own emotional health and b that I'm not putting myself in situations where I know I'm going to get triggered. Therefore I'm not doing, I'm not at my best for my client. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: So when I cry with them, You know, sometimes I'll even let them know, like, hey, like, I'm not being triggered. I'm just sharing in your pain right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just feeling it with you as we ride this wave.
1: And I'm sure they appreciate that. I mean, in general. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like I said, I, I don't always believe that you need to have lived experience to be a good therapist, Mm -hmm. but I, I question whether you could truly be a good grief therapist without having gone through it. Yeah, it's
1: hard. That is a hard balance. I was talking to somebody else about that just recently actually. And because there are moms I've talked to that won't won't see a therapist if they're not a bereaved person because they just don't mm-hmm. think they can they can do it, but mm-hmm. but my my grief therapist isn't bereaved and I think she's fantastic. I mean, she only sees bereaved moms. I think she's phenomenal at it, but it takes a special person um yeah. and and it does help, I think, if you have that experience not that I want people to have had that experience but it is helpful yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's it's a delicate balance isn't it because you don't want to wish it on somebody for sure yeah but no. yeah once you have that shared experience it is it's good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Good to be able to help each other out. So we were talking a little bit earlier about just kind of the different things that you do and how you do some group therapy and some individual therapy. And why don't you talk a little bit about what people might expect from this? Because you know I have a lot of listeners who come on who are very early in their grief. Some of them Mm -hmm. have never seen a grief therapist. Have not gone to a group, have don't really know what to expect. And I think there are some misconceptions out there. And I just want you to really kind of tell people maybe what you would look for and what you can expect and what, just let people know.
2: Yeah, totally. Great, great opener. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe the number one misconception I get about grief therapy is that I'm going to
1: fix it for yeah. you
2: or or make the pain go away or tell you what to do to feel better.
1: Yes. Although some people want that. I think, you know, you go in hoping that.
2: Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Like people come, people coming to me asking me that, Fix but I'm me. like, that's, I can't, I can't do that for you. Yeah. <laughs> that's not my role here today. And I think that's maybe the hardest part about grief work as opposed to other types of therapy where like, if you're working with someone with anxiety, you're like, here's some skills, here's some tools. We are going to, try and fix this problem together and make you feel better and alleviate that pain with grief. That is not the end goal. The only thing that a grief therapist can do really is just sit with you Mm -hmm. and just witness it and be there for you and, and feel the feelings with you Mm -hmm. because grief isn't, it's not something that can be fixed nor would I want to fix it. If I was taking away someone's grief, it would mean that they don't love that person as much as they do, that they don't miss that person as much as they do, that they don't value the relationship as much as they do.
1: So what would you say the goal is then?
2: The goal is to be able to help them process it. Sometimes people are just so afraid of the pain that they just can't let it come out. Mm -hmm. So giving them that safe space where they feel supported, where they feel like they can you know, ride that wave of, of grief or emotion or pain or whatever language makes sense to them. Sometimes it's just me sitting, watching them cry (laughs) and they feel safer knowing that someone's there. Or, or maybe it's me, you know, walking them through like, Hey, this is going to hurt. And, you know, we're going to come out of this. We're going to get you a drink of water. We're going to put a blanket over your lap Mm -hmm. and we're going to get through it together. Another thing I do with folks is help them integrate the loss. Mm-hmm. So we want to we want to take that grief in a way that they can carry it forward with them without it impeding them, right? Like yeah. in early grief obviously, we're we're not going to be functional humans. Right, right. <laughs> and, and I would never expect that of any griever, but you know, at at some point we want to find a way to Pick up that grief and just carry it with us in the rest of our life, and like in like a really beautiful way that that honors who
1: that person is and was and and keeps them with you. Well, and that's what you do in your work, right? That's mm-hmm. exactly what you've done with your work. You feel yeah. like, you know, Jacob's your little cheerleader there beside you, going, "That's my sister." You know, she's doing yeah. awesome, and I feel like with a podcast, Andy's like up in heaven going, look at my mom. Isn't my mom great? You know, because they are very much a part of what we're doing, Mm -hmm. but then in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're trying to find other people, obviously other people aren't going to do that. I mean, not everyone ends up doing something (laughs) in their life based around grief. I mean, we're kind of weird. We'll just put that out there. You know, for the majority (laughs) of people, it's not going to be that obvious, but to be able to integrate little pieces, I
2: think is huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's such a personalized journey, right? Like it looks different for every single person Mm -hmm. on how they can, how they can carry that person and that relationship and that loss with them for the rest of their lives in a way that, you know, still aligns with their visions and what their goals are for, for a happy, healthy human in this world.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I th- just think about different little things that people do. And, you know, sometimes people just like buying little gift cards and bringing them to the children's hospital and having something yeah. because that's just a exactly. little something they do. But that is that is integrating it, right? That is integrating yeah. your grief into your life. And that every once in a while, I buy $5 Starbucks gift cards or Tim Hortons or whatever, and bring it into the hospital for someone to be able to get a good cup of coffee and a donut, you know, it's, but that is a way of integrating. So it doesn't have to be big. They can be really small little things or just keeping your child's life or your sibling's life alive in the rest of, in the eyes of the rest of your family, right? Making them still, their presence still feel, be felt.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or even something as simple as like, for me, I had such an identity crisis of like, am I still a sister? Yeah. And a big part of integrating it, my loss was redefining my sisterhood and my relationship as a sibling. Mm -hmm. So even if it's just, you know, a parent like either claiming that they're a parent or claiming that they, that their child is dead or whatever language makes sense for them, but for them to redefine their own identity after that loss, I see integration that way too. Mm -hmm. And again, it's such a personal journey and it takes time.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I think about that too. I had big revelation one day as to, you know, my, definition of who I define myself as and I was like I'm a caregiver that's what I do and Mm -hmm. how can I do that moving forward and it's not going to look Mm -hmm. the same as it has in the past but that's always been me and that is still me so Mm -hmm. I think just looking at yourself in that way and trying to figure that out can be helpful and that is a beautiful thing a therapist can help you do yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and and I know just thinking back to my own therapy journey too I definitely did not think I was ever going to practice pediatrics again. I mean, there was certainly a time in my life where, like, that's just not happening. And mm-hmm. I remember my therapist said, we can get you there. Mm-hmm. If you want to be there, we can get you there. She also didn't mm-hmm. say I had to. Right? Yeah. That was also yeah. very key and very important because I had other people in my life say, oh, you will. Um, And then I had st- – Another person in my life say, well, it kind of sounds like you won't. And and But <laughs> the perfect thing was, if you want to, we can get you yeah. there. I know we can. And to have someone, a grief therapist there to say, we can get you wherever you want to be was so beautiful. Yeah,
2: that's so, so, so key in grief work is making room for those redefinitions, not, not putting permanence on anything, you know, like just because you take a leave of absence for a year doesn't mean that you're never returning to that job. It also doesn't mean that you have to return to that Mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. Like removing those, those self-perceived limitations. Yeah. Those self-perceived permanent decisions and, and recognizing that like, listen, we're just doing the best that we can in this moment, in this grief. And
1: there's so much possibility out there. Uh, yeah, I think back to a dad I talked to a long time ago now who said he was – he's just always been afraid to cry because he just never thought he'd stop. So he never has cried mm-hmm. because I just – I'm just afraid I won't stop. So that is a beautiful thing that I thought with my therapist as well is when I got there, we we would have kind of visualization exercises where I would visualize my box of grief that I was opening and really experiencing. But at the end of the session, she would kind of say, okay, now let's try to put some of that back in the box, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't feeling like I was leaving so devastated and – And, right, I wasn't like just the grief just pouring out of me when I walked out the door. She also would get me back to a point where I can walk out of the door now, Mm -hmm. right? And I can, and I would feel drained. There's no question, right? You have a big Mm -hmm. therapy session. You feel drained. But (laughs) yet you can now move forward. It's not like drained to the point where I can't function the rest of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, really good for a therapist to be able to do too, to be able to help you let it out and then Mm -hmm. help you know that it's okay to put it back away for a little bit and Mm -hmm. have periods of time where I'm going to take the grief out and I'm going to work on it now. And now I'm going to put it back up on the shelf. And I'm not going to work on it right now because it's too hard to work on it every moment of every day. You can't. Oh, yeah. No.
2: No. And that's such another important part of grief work too, is is helping clients find that balance. Because exactly as you said, if we engaged with that grief, that raw pain every second of every day, I honestly don't know if it's
1: like survivable. No, I don't know that I would be able to get out of bed. No. Right? I don't know. Could I get out of bed? Could I take care of the rest of my family? Could I you know drive drive a car could I do anything really cook a meal probably not if I'm feeling it all because some people feel like I need to feel it I need Mm -hmm. to feel this bad every second this horrible thing has happened I should feel this bad every second I mean I had those thoughts
2: yeah, totally. Right. Like, Oh, Hey, I'm, I'm eating food. Oh wait, that makes me a bad sister. i was supposed to be in mourning. I'm supposed to be grieving. Right. So, yeah, or if you I do laugh. Like,
1: heaven forbid.
2: Laughter. Oh, heaven forbid you laugh. Oh my God. Yeah. So working with clients to know that like grief is an experience. It is not an emotion.
1: Yeah.
2: You can be eating. <gasps> I love that. <laughs> you can be laughing. You can be sharing jokes with people and you are still grieving. You are still a bereaved person. Nothing is going to take that grief away from you, not eating, not laughing, not going back to your job, not, you know, getting remarried after the loss of a spouse. You like grief is a membership card, unfortunately, for life. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Like
2: you're in this club 24 seven until your time on this earth is done. So reminding people like, hey, eat, eat some food. Yeah. Some calories. Mm hmm. And you are still grieving. You are still doing the good heavy work of grieving as you eat those, as you eat that meal.
1: Yes. And you are going to have it forever and it's going to be with you forever, but it doesn't always have to feel as heavy as it does right then. Yes, exactly. So yeah, yeah, I I do want to mention that. I mean, I feel like initially the grief is like a gigantic boulder that -hmm. you're like, dragging because Mm -hmm. you can barely move yeah it takes all your energy and all your effort yes it takes every bit of you to even get it to budge Mm -hmm. and honestly three years out it's still a really heavy rock that I carry around with me every day I mean Mm -hmm. I've been told that someday it's going to feel more like a rock that's in my pocket that pokes at me every once in a while but doesn't always hurt. I'm not quite there yet, honestly. It's still a pretty darn heavy rock that I'm using quite a bit of energy to carry. I'm not like dragging it behind me, but it's still a big portion of my life, but it is, it is changing and it does not feel the same as it did at the beginning. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Another one of my favorite metaphors was actually given to me by my grief therapist. And she said, imagine your life as like a circle that's that's your whole life from infancy to this day it's like a circle that's this big and then when Jacob died that circle was filled with the black hole of grief there was like no room for anything else just everything was grief all the time just pain and anguish and rather than that I called it grief hole <laughs> yeah. rather than it getting smaller because in my early days of grief I was like I don't want it to get smaller no. I don't want to stop loving him and missing him this much ever she's like it doesn't have to it doesn't have to get smaller instead what happens as we age we get rings around the circle yeah because we're getting older and our life is getting bigger so as we move through life we keep that grief void but we build these rings around it that bring more balance Mm-hmm. While still having that that grief with us that we can carry and, and treasure and integrate and and engage with if we feel like we need to, mm-hmm.
1: I like how you say engage with too because that's that's important to know that it's okay to engage with your grief mm-hmm. at some point and then not mm-hmm. at others mm-hmm. and and that that is can be a constant thing that you're doing and that you're 25 years out and you can still engage with your grief sometimes it's not like there's some sort of time limit which I think the general public sort of thinks there is you know whether it's a year (laughs) or it's six months or it's whatever it is there's a time and once the time is up the time that they think is appropriate you should not feel it anymore and certainly not engage with it anymore it's done it's the past
2: that's not how, yeah. Yeah. I always say like grief is not, it's not something we can get over. It's not a door that you can close behind you because it's not a one-time event.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Like I lose Jacob over and over just a couple of days. It would have been his 25th birthday. I lost him again that day.
1: Yeah.
2: I'm going to lose him when, you know, he should have been getting married and having kids. And I would have been an aunt. I lose him, you know, every big family get together when, I see all my cousins with their siblings and I'm sticking out like the sore thumb without my sibling here with me. It's not something that we get over. It's not something that ever stops happening to us. But again, it's just about that integration and giving yourself time and space and compassion to build some balance in your life so that grief isn't the only key player in your emotional system. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah yeah just so that you're feeling more i just love how you said that grief is not an emotion it's an experience i mean that i i feel like that should be written in like <laughs> bold letters on the top of everybody's mirror or i don't know maybe on on my own forehead so that people <laughs> don't don't think that it's just done that you're just done with it at a certain point or that you're not I'm not grieving today like I'm Mm -hmm. sad today I'm angry today I'm grieving today but I'm not grieving tomorrow nope it's not like that at all Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well we've talked a lot I think about what individual therapy can do Can you talk about what you think the role of kind of group therapy can be for people yeah.
2: I love doing group therapy. Like that is probably my all time favorite work to do even though I love my individual clients so, so much. So one of the huge, huge benefits of group therapy is it decreases the isolation and alienation. that so many folks feel in grief, right? Especially in a society we are, where we are so ill prepared for the realities of grief and the bereavement process. I hear so many people think like, I must be going crazy or I'm doing this wrong, or is this what I'm supposed to be feeling right now? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no right or wrong way to grieve, but getting together with folks who have similar experiences can just be such a load off your shoulders to be like, oh my god, someone else feels that way too. Hallelujah! <laughs> I'm not, and
1: I haven't completely lost it. Right. I remember my grief support group somebody saying that that she couldn't follow a recipe to like cook, and I thought, oh good. I mean, <laughs> you know, I just, <sighs> it was just really a huge relief to know that somebody else's mind seemed that foggy that they couldn't follow a recipe. So
2: yes, totally, totally. Yeah. So I think that's one of the biggest benefits of it. I mean, oftentimes groups are either free or cost effective. So for folks who don't have insurance, it's a, it's a great option as well. And yeah, just that opportunity to build brotherhood and sisterhood and connection with fellow grievers is there's just something extra therapeutic about it.
1: Mm -hmm. I know it had been so helpful to me. I mean, I, I've talked about this before, like when I first started, I was just three, we were three weeks into a grieving, into our grief journey, and I just showed up because I didn't know what else to do. And I thought, okay, let's try a group. I don't know. And at first, I really didn't even want to be there, to be honest, because I felt like I I was in so much shock and disbelief that this was actually happening. I just kept my Mm -hmm. mind kept saying to myself, you don't belong here. You're not Mm -hmm. one of these people. You know what I mean? It just mm-hmm. didn't like feel real enough. But as time went on, it was just so nice to, like you said, to just not feel as alone in it, to just not mm-hmm. just to know that these people were feeling the same thing. And, and I think of my friend Megan, Megan and John came and Megan and John lost their daughter Willow two days before Andy died. And I, I just felt such a bond to them, because I knew they were experiencing the exact same thing. I mean, we were two days different in our wow. grief journey. And so to be able to know that every week when I showed up, they were going to be there too. It was, it just made you not feel alone. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think too, is. Several months in, we'd done a few sessions. I mean, we ended up going to Megan and John's house with another couple who lost their son a few months before us. And we had a game night. And it was great because I really felt like I could laugh and have fun with these people. And we love playing board games. I mean, we love it. But it it was weird after Andy died. It felt like we couldn't really do it anymore. It just seemed wrong mm-hmm. somehow to go somewhere and laugh with other people and I I think it was this fear that they would judge me and think that I'm not Mm -hmm. really grieving or I didn't really miss him or what if by some chance I something would trigger me and I would start crying then they would feel weird and it would spoil everything and I I had all of these crazy thoughts right it was everything all over it and I knew that when I went to Megan and John's house it didn't matter Mm -hmm. it did not matter at all. If I cried, it's fine. If I laughed, it was fine. I was just yeah. in an environment with people who I didn't have to pretend at all. And that, that may be the best thing about a grief support group. Because I've talked to a lot of brave people now. And we do a lot of pretending. Oh, well, yeah. You do a lot of pretending.
2: And it's so exhausting
1: that you are okay, and you smile, and you you pretend all the time, and to be able mm. to go somewhere, even if it's for an hour and a half once a week, and no, you don't have to pretend for that whole time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, and I
2: love that you brought up laughter, because I, I think maybe that's another big conception about grief therapy or grief groups, especially. Is it's just, oh, you know, other people are going to be crying, and I cry enough, and I don't need to listen to other people crying. Like, yeah, there's there's oftentimes tears, but
1: honestly, I think there's more laughter than I, tears. I think I think there's no question. There's no question. I mean, I'm doing a virtual grief support group now that I'm facilitating. I think we laugh more than we cry. I mean, there are weeks, yeah. there are weeks <laughs> that we probably cry more than we laugh, but there are definitely weeks that we laugh more than we cry. I mean, for totally, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, no guilt about it. Yeah. <laughs> no one's feeling guilty about laughing instead of crying because we're all laughing because we all know that everybody in that room or in that virtual room that we're in knows that we're not, not grieving just yeah. because we're laughing, mm-hmm. that we're not somehow over it or being disrespectful or anything. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, yeah, I think that is one of the best things about the support groups. So they definitely do do different things for sure. And I Mm -hmm. feel like they each have really a great place in your grief journey. And I would urge people not to try to just pick one Mm and think that you just have to do one and not the other. I mean, you don't have to do both, but I do think they do different things for people.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and different styles too, right? So you were asking me earlier, like what to look for in a grief therapist or in a grief group. and And that's kind of individualized too. It depends on what you know works for you. Like for mm-hmm. me, I needed a social worker who was going to like therapize me and was going to be clinical about it. That's just my style of, Mm -hmm. of accessing services. Some people don't like that. They only want peer support. Right. So there's so many different groups out there. Some of them are through religious affiliation. So if that's something important to you, look for that, you know, if you know that you like a bit more of like a, like a professional clinical approach, look for a licensed mental health professional as your, as your, therapist if you know that you don't like that approach and, and you only want to connect with other grievers look for something that's totally just peer-based right mm-hmm. I mean it's like every every journey is unique right so what's going to work for you is unique as well so to know that there are so many different types of, of grief groups and so many different types of group facilitators to to honor what what works for you and not be too discouraged if the first one doesn't work out, especially if you're looking for an individual therapist. I always say therapy is like online dating. You got to go on a few first dates before you find that oh magical gosh, connection. Yes.
1: <laughs> you are so right there. You don't even know how many times I talk to patients about that, teenagers especially. If yeah. you do not like your therapist, that does not mean you do not like therapy. That yeah. means you need a new therapist. Yeah. You know, I I talk to them all the time. I've said this on the show that I when my mother died – I saw a therapist at my college, and the therapist wanted me to draw, and I hate drawing. I just hate it. And it was not at all helpful to me. It's, like, stressful to me that she wanted me to draw. And when I left, every week I left, I really honestly felt worse than when I got Mm -hmm. there. That is not what's supposed to happen. Mm -hmm. That does not mean she was not a lovely therapist for someone else. I'm sure she was. And Mm -hmm. honestly, she probably didn't have to deal with grief that much. I mean, you talked about Mm -hmm. this too, before we started recording that not every therapist is a good grief therapist. So when you're a college age student and they just put you into the counseling center, that they're very well, maybe no one Mm -hmm. at that Mm -hmm. counseling center who is good Mm -hmm. at dealing with grief because it's not a common topic that college age kids have to deal with.
2: It's not, I, I didn't even learn anything about grief therapy in my entire master's degree. It's something that I had to seek out and take postgraduate courses in. So, yeah, I mean, just like doctors, right? Like you wouldn't go to your neighbor who's an oncologist to look at the mole on your back. Like, no, you'd go to a dermatologist, same thing. You wouldn't go to the dermatologist to look at your heart. You go to a cardiologist, all therapists have specializations, I would say if a therapist is, has like a hundred different specializations on their website, to me, that's a huge red flag. Me too. That is, that is not
1: <laughs> I, good I have practice. asked, because I've been in a medical director role and I've talked to therapists and I've asked them, what are you good at? And mm-hmm. when they tell me, oh, I can do anything, I'm Mm-mm. like, you know what, Done. then I don't want it. I don't want you to do anything because mm-hmm. I want you to tell me the, the, about five things that you feel like you're really good at. Because that's, yeah. I think, what you should be as a therapist. You should be good at a few things, a handful of things that you're just good at. And that's what you focus on and the other stuff someone else can do. I mean, if you feel yeah. like you have this pressure to do everything, then you're probably not doing anything well.
2: Yeah, I agree. And and like I said, like there's so many different types of therapy. There's so many types of therapeutic modalities and interventions that there's just no way you can know all of them. Like we yeah. learn a couple in school and then it's on you as a professional to continue your professional development journey and keep doing post-grad- postgraduate education and courses and certifications and all that kind of stuff. So it
1: is not possible to be And then you get your kind of niche that you feel like yeah. what you're good at. I mean, even in pediatrics, I do, I do a lot of stuff with migraine headaches. Like I am the migraine mm-hmm. headache person of our You know, dozen people in our pediatrics practice. When someone has trouble with someone with headaches, who do they turn to? They turn to me. I mean, there are other people that we turn to for different things, and that is in a specialty. That already in a specialty, right? Mm -hmm. So, it's like that with everything. I mean, I feel like I I was laughed too because every once in a while, my husband comes home, and that someone will ask him some sort of medical question about pediatrics because he's married to me. I mean, (laughs) he did not learn pediatrics from osmosis from me. He's an anesthesiologist. He does not know anything about pediatrics. I mean, except the little bits that he might have picked up and not enough, right? So yeah. (laughs) So anyway, it's the same kind of stuff. You just have to Find that person, find that perfect person. And and mm-hmm. in my college experience, you know, I ended up not going through the counseling center. I went through one of the campus ministers and she was beautiful and really helpful and really helped me tremendously with my grief. And every week when I left her, I felt better. And that's what you should do. If you don't yeah. feel like a weight off, I mean, it may be draining, but you should feel a little lighter, right? After you have had sessions with your therapist. It should take some of that weight off.
2: Yeah. I generally agree. The only caveat I would say is if someone has been, is like a little bit farther along in the grieving process, sometimes when we see them for the first time, things get worse before they get better. Oh, sure. Like if, if they've not engaged with that grief very much that those, those big, heavy, painful emotions, Mm -hmm. It's going to feel terrible. And
1: I actually do tell kids, too. When I tell kids, I tell them they have to go six times before they can quit. So, I I mean, that is the thing that I do, too, because I do not let them quit after one because you are right. You are getting into some stuff, whether it's their grief, whether it's anxiety, depression, no matter what it is, you have to get into it and get into a relationship so that's my rule, is the six-time rule. You go six times. I love that rule. If you rule. don't like them, <laughs> after six times, I will find you someone else. But if you don't give me the six times, if you that's really not trying. So mm-hmm. I hope that you can get somebody feeling comfortable and so they're starting to feel a little better after they see you after six times. Does that seem like a reasonable? <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. I think that's definitely reasonable. <laughs> okay.
1: We'll go with that then. So any of you starting therapy, you give it six times. <laughs> yep. <laughs> according to both Sarah and me now. So. <laughs> well, is there anything else you feel like you want to share with the audience as kind of parting words before we, we wrap up here?
2: The only other thing I wanted, I mean, we touched on it a little bit, but like how parents can support their yes. kids when there's been another loss. Right. And it is so tricky and I do a lot of work with adults, like when there's an adult surviving child with their, maybe like middle-aged or more towards a senior parent. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work that I do in those circumstances are really about very clearly explaining your individual grief needs to each other Mm -hmm. and finding ways where you can support each other without violating your own bereavement needs.
1: That's good. Communication is so, so important. Yeah, so important. Yeah, because sometimes your needs don't quite, they just don't quite fit perfectly. Mm -hmm. So you need to find Mm -hmm. a way to make them fit as well as you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good piece of advice for us all to remember. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing Jacob with us and sharing your vast knowledge of uh, (laughs) grief and grief therapy. I think it will be super helpful to all of my listeners to be able to just learn from what to expect.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me, Marcy. It's been a joy sharing Jacob with you. And yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at Be sure to visit the webpage andysmom.com for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.